0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. Now it happened that as he was praying alone, the disciples were with him. And he asked him, Who do the crowds say that I am? And they answered, John the Baptist. But others say Elijah, and others that one of the prophets of the old has risen. Then he said to him, Them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered, The Christ of God. And he strictly charged and commanded them to tell this to no one, saying that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And he said to all, he said to all, if anyone will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me for whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. Then verse 57. As they were going along the road, someone said to him, I will follow you wherever you go. And Jesus said to him, foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests. But the son of man has nowhere to lay his head to another. He said, follow me. But he said, Lord, let me first go bury my father. And Jesus said to him, Leave the dead to bury their own dead, but as for you, go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Yet another said, I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those at my home. Jesus said to him, No one who puts his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. Please take a moment and meditate on the scriptures.
1: was preparing this morning, somebody came up to me and said, I've been in churches before that have two services, and the first sermon's always better than the second time it's delivered. So you're, you're getting, you know, if you don't think it's good now, boy, you would come to the second service. It does, it's not even, doesn't get better. Um, what, one of the main questions that we as a staff, as elders, have been asking ourselves, really, I would say over the past year. Is this question about are we making disciples? I mean that's the the main thrust, is it not, Matthew twenty eight and a number of other places when Jesus is just about ready to ascend, he says, you know, this is the last, you know, last bit of information, hey, to the disciples, go make more disciples and that 's what we 're trying to do is to to go out and make more disciples, and so we 're routinely asking ourselves that question: "Are we making disciples? Or are we sort of just doing church we 're providing the the standard expectations of programming or information, which might be helpful, but We're really trying to drill down on what does it mean to make a disciple and then are we doing those things that provide people opportunity to really become stronger in their following after Jesus. So I thought I'd take a few weeks here as we begin a a new season and a new series to talk about discipleship before I launch into a, a new series on the book of Colossians, which is a book that Paul wrote specifically to a church that wants to help strengthen them in their following after Jesus. So this week we're in Luke. The next couple of weeks we'll be in the book of Acts. We're looking at discipleship, and then we'll be in the book of Colossians. And so really for the next five months or so, we'll have this discipleship theme behind all that um, we say here from the pulpit. So with that in mind, let's look at Luke chapter 9. To get some reference, the first eight chapters of luke are focused primarily on this question who is jesus if you look back just one page probably chapter 8 verse 25 a familiar story where uh there's a storm that comes up and uh jesus calms the storm and you can just imagine being on that boat and the, the disciples have just nearly lost their lives they felt like And then Jesus comes and calms the storm. And then the disciples look at each other and they say, who is is this? I mean, who is this person? We've been following them around, but... I mean, we just don't see people do this kinds of stuff. We're asking this question, "Who is this?" And if you read through the first eight chapters of Luke, you would find that that's a reoccurring theme, the question about who is Jesus. And then when you get to chapter nine, the shift occurs, where Peter definitively answers the question, and you see it there in verse 20. when Jesus says, "Who do you say that I am?" And Peter says, "You are the Christ, you're the Messiah." Uh, And then Jesus, from this point on, really through the rest of the book, but especially in these next couple of chapters, he then proceeds to tell them, okay, now that you see me, this is what it means to follow after me. Now I'm trying to help you understand not who I am, but how you follow after me. How do you... How do you become my disciple? And so we're just going to look at a few of those components this morning. First, I want us to know, understand that disciple, discipleship begins by divine disclosure. Discipleship begins by divine disclosure. So what do I mean? Let's look at at verse 18. And at now it happened that he, Jesus, was praying alone, and the disciples were with him. Now, uh, this is such a critical inclusion by Luke. It's not, not just sort of a throwaway. You don't just sort of say, well, let's get on to what Peter's going to say. This is, this is such a critical piece, verse 18. It should be like, you know, you have the red letter edition of the Bible. This should be like the blinking version. So if you got to verse 18 this this would be the blinking version this is what everyone would would say or Jesus would want to say this is a critical verse here that Jesus is praying with his disciples because anytime Jesus is praying something massive is happening or something massive is taking place at that moment and you sort of see the unfolding of it in the next few verses Immediately following the prayer, Jesus asked the disciples, well, who do the crowd say that I am? And the crowd sort of give the marketplace response. And you see that just here's what basically people are saying about you. Some people think you're John the Baptist. Other people think you're Elijah. And others think you're just like one of these prophets like we've had in our history. Now, I just want to notice, look back chapter 9, verse 7. Herod, you might think of Herod's a king, but Herod is more like a, maybe a governor. And underneath Herod is Pontius Pilate. And so Herod's got this larger region that he's over, and he's been hearing about Jesus. Now Herod, the tetrarch, or maybe like a governor, sometimes called a king, heard about all that was happening. This is chapter 9, verse 7. And he was perplexed. Because it was said by some that John the Baptist had been raised from the dead. Remember, he's the one who cut John the Baptist's head off. So some people were saying, well, John the Baptist has come back from the dead. And some were saying Elijah had appeared, and others that it was one of the prophets. You see, that's the same thing the disciples are saying. Uh, Herod had turned into the same talk radio station, and he's getting the same kind of information. Hey, this guy named Jesus is on the loose, and he's doing some incredible things, and there's lots of information going around about him, about who he is. And in verse 9, Herod kind of scratches his head and says, well, John, I beheaded. But but who is this? See, who is this? Who is this about whom I hear such things and Herod sought to see Jesus. Now let's just hold on to that and let's go back to verse 20 now. After Jesus after Jesus asked the question, the disciples give the popular answer, then he says, "But who do you say that I am?" See, but Jesus understands there's, there's something else out there. There's the common sort of uh, marketplace reaction. But you guys have been with me. You're the inside. You're the inner circle. But who do you say that I am? Am I just like one of these other people? Or am I somebody unique? And then Peter responds with this massive earth-shaking confession you are the christ you're the messiah you're you're the one all the old testament's been pointing towards you're the king we know who you are jesus and we know from matthew's account if you went back to matthew chapter 16 right after peter makes this confession peter jesus says something very important to peter matthew 16:17. blessed are you peter This was not revealed, or this was not disclosed to you by man, but by my Father in heaven. Okay, so what I'm trying to say is Jesus is informing Peter, and he's informing every other follower of Christ, that your ability to see Jesus begins by divine disclosure. That's how it begins. The Father has acted in some way to help you see something that you couldn't see before. Peter had been staring at Jesus, and now he sees something new. And Jesus says, Peter, the only way you can see that is by divine disclosure. My Father has helped you see something that you haven't previously seen. Now, if you think back to Herod. Remember, Herod's perplexed. He's wondering who Jesus is. And if you were to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 23, you see that Herod gets his chance to have a face-to-face encounter with Jesus. So here he is. He's been perplexed. And finally, he gets his face-to-face encounter. And listen carefully to how Luke describes the encounter. Pontius Pilate, remember, he's underneath Herod in the leadership of 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 the country. Pontius Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. And when Herod saw Jesus, he was greatly pleased, because for a long time he'd been wanting to see Jesus. And Herod hoped to see Jesus perform. See, Herod's the king. And Jesus comes in and says, he's going, well, I've heard so much about you. I mean, I've been listening to talk radio, and I've been hearing all the the information, and, and now, hey, do some tricks, Herod had hoped to see Jesus perform. Herod asked Jesus many questions, but Jesus gave no answer to Herod. Herod, not getting what he wanted, he and his soldiers began to ridicule and mock Jesus. Before this, Pilate and Herod had been enemies. That day, they became friends. So Herod sees Jesus. This, this to me is just sort of a stunning moment. He sees Jesus, but he's not looking for a king. He's looking for a magician. He's looking for an entertainer. Maybe he's looking for some kind of personal assistant. He doesn't want a king to bow down to. He wants somebody who can sort of just help him along with what he's doing. And what the tragedy of this moment is, is he sees Jesus and he walks away being friends with Pilate. I mean, what a tragedy you're you're standing there and you're looking at Jesus, the king of all of creation. And you say, I'm going to I'm going to hitch my wagon to Pilate," And you walk away with his friends with Pilate. And so discipleship begins by divine disclosure. The father has to open your eyes to see something you cannot see. And let me give two points of application. Uh, number one, because discipleship begins with, with this divine disclosure, because it begins with God opening your eyes to see Jesus, this should produce in every disciple a massive amount of humility. Why? Because, because you didn't see Jesus because you're smarter. You didn't see Jesus because of where you live. You didn't see Jesus because you're more, more holy You've got more things right. You didn't see Jesus for any reason that belongs to yourself. You saw Jesus because God divinely disclosed Jesus to you. And once you really realize that, then that creates a massive amount of humility as you interact with other people who don't see Jesus. You're never going to look down at people because you're going to understand, hey, I'd be there too if there wasn't some kind of divine disclosure. So one one critical component and and so often missing in disciples is a is a massive amount of of humility You remember the uh, the passage and i'm not sure where it is but it's in one of the gospels where uh you come to church and up front is the pharisee the the pastor of the church basically you remember and he's he's saying hey i've got it all together I i do all these things and who's in the back you know, the tax collector, he's beating his chest. He's not even, he's not even able to look up saying, God, I, I don't even deserve to be in the building. And Jesus says, you know, the person closer to God is the person in the back. And so often in our discipleship, the closer we get to Jesus, unfortunately, our character doesn't display greater humility. Humility. Which, which is what it should. The more you understand about who Jesus is and his divine disclosure, it should create a massive amount of humility in your character. So one, one point of application is all glory goes to God. So it, it's divine disclosure. Not Number two, in terms of application, if you're in a position of discipling other people, you're a mom or a dad, you're a teacher, you're a youth leader, you're going to leave now and you're going to go teach a Sunday school class. You're a mentor of some kind. Maybe you're reading or meeting with somebody one-on-one or you're leading a small group or a neighborhood Bible study. It's critical to remember that prayer fuels people seeing Jesus. Verse 18, this is why I put this emphasis on this, and I think Luke, Luke puts the emphasis on it. Luke, verse chap, verse 18, fuels verse 20 verse 18 is the fuel that get that that jesus uses to get to peter to confession in verse 20 that's that's such a critical thing that's that's the most important thing about this sermon to me is that if you're discipling somebody the fuel for your discipleship is bringing people before the lord first It's really important that you sit in front of your person or you sit in front of your class and you say these things. I don't want to minimize that. But the the priority is you bringing your class to God before you bring yourself to your class. That's the priority. You sitting in front of me is like sitting in front of a lamp. It might give you some light. It might help you out. But you sitting in front of Jesus is like sitting in front of the sun. He's going to change your complete complexion. And so Luke is trying to say something very important here. I think God's trying to say something very important here. When you're discipling other people, bring those people before God before you bring yourself before them. Number two. The second thing we see about discipleship here in verses 23 through 25 is uh, you have to gain a new identity if you become a disciple. Verse 24, you see this word life. And in the Greek, it's not the word for physical life. Uh, The Greek word for physical life is bios, where you get biology, the study of life. It's a different Greek word. It's the word uh, translated as psyche, psyche where you would get the word psychology. And so it, it means a study of yourself. The, the The word life here is how you see yourself, how you think of yourself. So when you have to have a new life, he's not talking about just laying down your physical life. He's, he's saying you're going to have to lay down your current identity. The way you get your identity has to die, and a new identity has to come to life. So when Jesus says take up your cross, he's not just saying sacrifice your physical life. He's saying sacrifice your current identity. And when you become a disciple of Jesus, your your old ways of of gaining your self-image are like booster rockets that have to fall off. All the things that boosted your self-image have to just fall away because now you're a new creation in Christ and your identity comes from Christ. So here's my question here is, what's the main thing that fuels your current identity? I mean, is it being married? Is it having a family? Is it your career? Is it your education? Is it the way you look physically? Is it your money? I mean, there's a hundred booster rockets you can grab hold of. And Jesus is saying, hey, all those things, those things have to fall away. And now this one main thing is going to fuel your identity. That's you being in me. All your old ways go away. And Paul says it this way in Galatians. I've been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. Now there is no longer Jew or Greek, slave or free, Man or woman, you see, he's deconstructing all the ways people fuel their identity and say all those things, they're gone away because your identity now is locked in on Christ. And so this is a massive transformation. And I don't have time to talk about it here in this particular sermon, but we'll talk about it more next week when we get to Acts. The, the way you see yourself as an American, as a white person, as a certain age There's a certain social status. It's amazing how many of those things really fuel who you think about, how you think about yourself. And Jesus comes to say, hey, all those things, we've got to peel all those things back, and you're going to have a new identity. So what fuels your current identity? What needs to fall away now that you're a disciple of Christ? And finally, number three, uh, discipleship requires a new priority. If, If you're following after Christ, it creates a humility because you understand it's begun by divine disclosure. All glory is going to end up in God's hands. Once you really realize that, it creates this humility and you start bringing people before the Lord because you realize, hey, that's the thing that fuels people seeing God. And then you say, hey, I've got a whole new identity. I'm not, I'm not being boosted by these things in, that, that are of the world. I'm, I'm being boosted by my identity in Christ. And finally, I have this new priority. Now, you look, notice in uh, verse 57, Jesus sort of, uh, or Luke just sort of presents three people in succession that encounter Jesus. And they're very short. And honestly, I would want to know, well, what happened to these people? He doesn't give you any follow-up. Just this, they have a question, Jesus has an answer, it's next person. And sort of like this machine gun style in rapid succession. And and Jesus' answers to each one are are sort of surprisingly blunt. Verse 57 As they're going along the road, someone comes up and says, I'll follow you wherever you go. And you sort of would think Jesus would say, Great, join the train, come on. But he must have some kind of suspicion about the guy. You don't really know, but you get a sense of it because he has this odd sort of answer to the guy. The guy comes up, I'm going to go wherever you go. And he says, well, foxes have holes and birds have the air uh, of the air have nests, but the Son of Man, he doesn't have anywhere where to lay his head. And, and it seems to me that he's looking at this guy and saying, hey, you're pretty connected to the comfort of your own home and your lifestyle. and that has to fall away if you want to follow after me. You have to have a new priority. The the things that you've attached yourself to have to begin to fall away. I I'm here and I'm not, I don't have that kind of priority. I, I've come to lose things on this earth. I, I'm divesting myself of things here. Are you willing to give up your home? Are you willing to give up your comforts? Are you willing to give up your standard of living? Are you willing to lose your property on this planet? Because your hope is fixed on eternity. Now, I don't know, I don't, I don't know what this guy says. Just next guy up. And the next two guys really have the same thing, and you see their priority uh, very easily. Verse 59, to another he said, follow me. So now Jesus comes to a guy, and he says to the guy, hey, you come after me. Lord, then what does it say? Let me first. Let me first go bury my father. Verse 61, and yet to another... I will follow you, Lord, but let me first say farewell to those in my home. See, I've got to have my family first. And once I get my family organized, then I can turn my attention to you, Jesus. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way. All attention has to come to me first as a priority. It doesn't mean you neglect everything else. It means that you prioritize Jesus above everything else. He's first. And these guys had that backwards. You've got to put your hand to the plow and don't look back. You've got to let the dead bury the dead. You've got to be completely and utterly focused on me. You can't, if you can't put me first right now, if you think, hey, I'm gonna, I know Jesus, and I'm going to circle back around to Jesus at some point, Jesus says, then you're not fit for the kingdom. It's people who are willing to let all that stuff go, and their absolute, complete priority is on following Jesus. And so when I thought about this particular point, I thought about Paul's um, comment in 1 Corinthians. You remember he talks about uh, when runners run a race. And they run it to get a crown. And it, because they're running to get this crown, then, then they go into strict training. And they beat their bodies. They, they harden their bodies in some way to say, hey, I'm getting this crown that won't last. And then Paul makes this jump to say, hey, you're getting a crown too. And you're going to have to make this your priority. You're going to have to go into strict training to make sure you get this crown as well. You're moving in this direction. And so when I think about this idea of priority, sometimes I think, how do I know if I'm prioritizing Christ? Does it mean 12 and a half hours of my day were given to prayer? So more more was given to prayer than anything else? And I think, well, no, that's, that's not it, because I can't, I'm not going to give 12 and a half hours of my day to prayers. I'm not going to give 51%, and I know that's my priority. So how do you know if it's your priority? And the way I was thinking about this from First Corinthians is, let's say you were training to run a marathon or a half marathon, or if, in your mind, just three miles seemed like a long way, just whatever in your mind seemed like, okay, I'd have to go into strict training for that. I couldn't just go out there and do that right now. Well, if you're going to run a half marathon, you're probably going to run four times a week, let's say. You're not going to run every single day. You're going to run four times a week. Maybe you do one, something else, some cross training. And each time you're going to run is going to be 45 minutes, an hour, hour and 15 minutes, an hour and a half. Something like that depends on as you, as you graduate up to run longer. So maybe you're going to do something a couple of hours, hour and a half a day. But see... That You know if you're going to run a marathon, it's also affecting all other areas of your life. How you sleep, how you eat, what you read, what you talk about. Because I'm, I'm in strict training. Now, I may just be giving myself to a half an hour, 45 minutes, an hour. But it's, it's, it's leaking out. It's prioritizing all the rest of what I do. I don't go to Golden Corral after every run. I do something different. And so I think that's the idea that Jesus is trying to say. He's not trying to say your family means nothing. Your career means nothing. No, he's not saying that. He said, I have to be first. And then that driving after that first thing, it orients or orders everything else in your life. Does that make sense? And that's my question is, is Jesus that kind of priority? I mean, you're in training for a crown that will last forever. And if somebody sort of looked how you oriented your life, would they say, yeah, they got got one particular focus, and then everything sort of lines up behind that one thing? Let me just say one thing in conclusion. Tim Keller, pastor in New York City, tells a story about a time he was at a conference. I think he was uh, maybe in college And a woman was speaking and gave this illustration, which he said changed his life. And she says this, if the distance between the earth and the sun, which is 92 million miles. The difference between the distance between the earth and the sun is 92 million miles. If that was a thickness, was the thickness of a piece of paper then the diameter of our entire galaxy would be a stack of papers 310 miles high. In other words, if you took the distance between the earth and the sun and you just made that the thickness of a piece of paper, if you were trying to measure that now against, across the whole galaxy, you'd have to stack up notebook paper 310 miles high. So, obviously, an enormous galaxy. And our galaxy is less than a speck of dust... In the part of the universe that we can see. And that part of the universe that we can see. Might just be a speck of dust compared to all of the universe. And if Jesus is the one who holds all this together with the word of his power. Is this the kind of person you ask in your life to be your personal assistant? Go out and think about these things. And that changed Tim Keller's view of who God was. And so maybe in your discipleship, you just tend to think of Jesus as he's helping me out. He's like a personal assistant. I'm ringing up, ringing him up and saying, hey, I need some help. And I would say, if that's the way you think about it, you're thinking a lot more like Herod than a disciple. Hey, Jesus, I need you to perform on the spot. See, discipleship costs something. Costs your current identity cost you your priorities, cost you pride. Of course, the gain is immeasurable. So we'll be thinking about that over the next few weeks. As we come to the table, obviously, it's a great time to examine ourselves. Jesus understands that uh, his people are prone to wonder. And he says, so every time you get together, I want you to remember what I've done I want you to remember the kind of race that I ran for you on your behalf and that I'm going to ultimately get you all the way home. And so the table is meant for people who have trusted in Christ, not, not people who are perfect, but people who have committed themselves to be a disciple of Christ.